Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Here's what's coming up. As Ukraine's support lags in the United States and Europe, Poland's new government vows to rally the West. Foreign Minister Radek Sikorski joins me. Then, candidate Joe Biden returns to South Carolina, hoping to recharge black voter support for 2024. We hear about this trip. And one of America's most celebrated writers calls for a ceasefire in Gaza, Walter Isaacson talks war, anti-Semitism, and vengeance with Tony Kushner. Also ahead, Afro music icon and politician Bobby Wine on his brave opposition to Uganda's forever president, Yaori Museveni. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in London. It is a new year in Ukraine, and already the consequences of softening U.S. support are being felt. The Wall Street Journal reports Kyiv is running out of ammunition as the pipeline of money and materiel from Washington runs dry. The pain is being felt from the front lines to Ukraine's cities, where 11 civilians, including five children, were killed in missile strikes in eastern Ukraine this weekend. But President Zelensky remains defiant, as correspondent Fred Pleitkin reports from Kyiv. In the new year, Russia tried again to bring Ukraine to its knees with airstrikes, large-scale attacks, special combined attacks aimed at overloading our air defense and striking critical infrastructure. Ukraine says Russia has stepped up attacks both on the ground and in the air in the past weeks, killing nearly 120 civilians and wounding almost 500 more since December 29th, according to the U.S. The U.S. claims Russia has even used missiles procured from North Korea to attack Kharkiv in northeastern Ukraine. Moscow hasn't commented so far, and Ukrainian authorities investigating the wreckage say they haven't yet come to a final conclusion about the missile's origin. Most likely, this missile was either supplied by North Korea or was produced recently using blueprints and technologies supplied by Russia to third countries or to North Korea, this official says. Russian President Vladimir Putin celebrating Orthodox Christmas as he escalates his assault against Ukraine meeting with families of Russian soldiers killed on the battlefield and vowing to support the loved ones of all those he sends to the war zone. 
You know that many of our men, our courageous, heroic guys, Russian warriors, even now, on this holiday, defend the interests of our country with arms in hand, he says. I want to assure you, we will always have your back. That was correspondent Fred Pleitkin in Kyiv. Now, tremors from Russia's large-scale attacks are also impacting Poland, neighbor to both Ukraine and Russia, and a critical NATO ally. Just last week, fighter jets scrambled after Warsaw reported a Russian missile entered Polish airspace headed to Ukraine. A new government there, headed by the former European Council President Donald Tusk, is pushing for a full mobilization of the free world to help Ukraine fend off Russia. Radek Sikorsky is the new foreign minister, and he joins me now from Warsaw. Welcome to the program, foreign minister. Well, you're the, you're the foreign minister again, I should say. Uh, so congratulations. And Hello, I want Christian. to know, what are you and your government going to do to, as your prime minister says, rally the West. You, you must, I guess, feel the, the shock and the reality of this pipeline that's drying up now to, for, for Kyiv. Well, first of all, let me say how grateful we are to the people of the United States and personally to President Biden for rallying around Ukraine in her hour of need. Uh, we rallied around the U.S., uh, uh, Poland sent a brigade to Iraq, a brigade to Afghanistan, uh, and now uh, we are holding off a, an aggressive uh, dictator who is bent on recreating a, a European empire, <laughs> a, a concept whose time has passed. And Ukraine is uh, the internationally recognized victim, uh, recognized by the U.N. General Assembly. Uh, and the consequences of uh, Putin conquering Ukraine would be catastrophic. Uh, first of all, of course, for Ukraine, but also for her neighbors, for Europe, and for the whole system of American alliances. Mm, President Biden has been to Kiev. Um, uh, the United States is present now militarily in Poland. Uh, the Ukrainians need to be given the... Uh, tools to, to do the job, and they're, they're doing the job extremely well for a few percent of uh, an uh, annual U.S. defense budget. They've already destroyed half the Russian army. Um, the cost of deterring Putin uh, after he conquers Ukraine would be much, much higher mm -hmm. than the cost of uh, keeping the Ukrainians supplied now. So I urge uh, U.S. lawmakers uh, to pass the law that would enable them to defend themselves. So, Foreign Minister, it's not just the United States, which is obviously the biggest backer, I guess, but it's also Europe. The promised uh, billions that, that EU ha have put on the table have not materialized. So you just were there recently, and I wonder, you, you see how Putin is reacting. He just looks much more emboldened in public life. You can see on the map the, you know, the percentage increases they're making in various areas. They took back an important uh, symbolic, anyway, uh, town uh, not, not long ago. What are you hearing from inside the government of Ukraine? Are they, how worried are they? The Ukrainians are the only people who are entitled to feel tired by this war because they are dying and, and, and their cities are being bombed. But on contributions, uh, let's remember that if you compute the contributions of EU institutions and member states, which is how you should count it, the US and European contributions are about the same, about 75 billion each. 
And actually, Poland, if you uh, count the cost of helping uh, Ukrainian refugees, Poland is number one in contributions uh, on a per capita basis uh, in proportion to GDP. Uh, and even without that, we are number three or five. Um, so a lot is being done by Europe. But of course, on the military side, the US is absolutely indispensable. And that's why Ukraine needs this package of American help. And I, I hope that both parties in the US Congress support it. And we've been reading a lot. We have our reporters there in the East and elsewhere in Ukraine. Uh, you know, they get some access. And we see so many more injuries, so many more deaths from the front lines. We hear, you know, from soldiers and others who are trying their best under these circumstances who, you know, yes, they're still at it, but morale is, is, is suffering if they don't have what they need to actually repel this invasion. What do you... What, 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 what sort of atmosphere did you pick up when you were with the president, when you were, I guess you spoke probably to some of the Ukrainian military leaders as well, because there was such a can-do feeling even a year ago that doesn't seem to be as prominent right now. Of course, wars always go through their ups and downs. Uh, the Ukrainians have reconquered 50% of the territory that the Russians or, or originally took from them. And this is not a story of success by the Russian army. They were so cocky as to think that they can conquer Ukraine in three days. And here we are, uh, almost two years, um, they've taken uh, um, uh, just a small percentage of Ukrainian territory in the south. But Ukraine needs the ammunition. You cannot fight an invader with bare arms. Um, and we should supply them because uh, they, uh, you know, if, if their sacrifice uh, is in vain, then we will have to deter Putin ourselves. And it's going to be our soldiers, including American soldiers who are already here, uh, who might have to be committed. So it's in every way um, in our interest to help the Ukrainians uh, defend their land. Um, but time is of the essence. Um, uh, the Russians have an advantage, uh, I was told, eight to one in uh, artillery in the number of shells uh, that are, that are uh, aimed uh, at both sides. And of course, they are uh, shooting at uh, cities with area weapons, imprecise munitions, which means that it's guaranteed that they hit civilian targets. Uh, President Putin, as you know, is also indicted by the International Criminal Court for, believe it or not, stealing children from Ukraine. I never thought that I would live in a Europe in which uh, a, a member of the Security Council of the UN is credibly accused of stealing their neighbor's children. This is completely unacceptable. And I'm glad that uh, we are in an alliance uh, that uh, seeks to prevent it. But we need to do the practical thing to help the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, um, you know, former CIA director, former CENTCOM commander, General Petraeus, told me that if Putin wins in Ukraine, he won't stop there. And uh, you probably heard some of President Biden's speech, really a very, very passionate speech about uh, the consequences of, of, of everything that's happening in the world on democracy. He's obviously talking about his own opponent uh, in, in the upcoming presidential race. But I guess your new government has also come in to try to 
disentangle your country from the uh, forces of populism that have been, if I can put it that way, uh, governing for the last several years. What are you planning to do to bolster your democracy? And, and is that, how, can you do it? Well, we have challenges, as, as do you. We need to restore uh, meritocratic civil service. We need to restore independence and um, veracity to uh, public media. We need to uh, restore the independence of the judiciary. But we are going to deal with, with all that. What we also need, above all, is physical security. You know, Poland uh, is uh, located on a, on a wide open um, a plane, uh, uh, and there are hostile um, troops uh, 250 kilometers from where I'm speaking to you in Belarus, which uh, has almost been swollen up uh, by Russia, certainly in the military field. Um, what's at stake in Ukraine is the principle of not changing borders by force, but it's also the credibility of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and of, of the United States too. And it can be done um, to bolster Ukraine, to bolster the morale of the West and of the forces of democracy and of, uh, of constitu uh, constitutionality. This can be done um, at a very small cost, uh, uh, relatively speaking. And remember, there is also the practical uh, element. We are testing the weapons that are being used to defend Ukrainian cities, for example, the algorithms of uh, Patriot missiles. And uh, your equipment is um, actually uh, proving to be much more effective than the Russian equipment. And I'm told uh, um, $90 billion of new uh, defense contracts have already been placed in the United States since the start of this war. Um, so on all those uh, counts, um, uh, we, we need Ukrainians to win this with our support. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. support is indispensable. And, and just a last question. I mentioned that uh, apparently a Russian missile passed through your territory um, on its way to Ukraine. And um, also that I think Poland has caught and convicted several pro-Russian collaborators or whoever they might be operating on your territory against Ukraine. Are you afraid that this is on its way to spilling over the borders and into NATO countries? Well, it's a full spectrum interference. Russia is conducting a hybrid war against uh, many countries in Europe, has interfered uh, in the uh, Brexit referendum, in uh, election campaigns in France, in, uh, in Poland, in the United States. Um, we tried to uh, uh, give Russia a choice to become a normal nation state. Uh, Russia was invited into the Council of Europe, into the G7, uh, into various Western institutions. Instead, it chose the path of rebuilding empire and of aggression against its neighbors. And that cannot pass. And yes, it's not comfortable to be a frontline state. And uh, it's not the first time a Russian missile uh, has entered Polish uh, territory. One of those Russian missiles actually landed 10 kilometers from my own house. Um, yes, we need strengthening our uh, air defenses. We are buying American systems to do so. But the best insurance uh, for Europe is for Ukraine to win this and for Russia to... Uh, to uh, 
uh, revise its uh, national ideology to, uh, to accept that the age of European empires is gone and is not coming back. Radek Sikorsky, Foreign Minister, thank you very much for joining us from Warsaw. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Now, U.S. President Joe Biden has been speaking in Charleston, South Carolina, a state that was critical to turning around his flagging campaign in 2020. Now a crucial stop on his road to re-election this year. He spoke at the Mother Emanuel AME Church, the site of a racist massacre of black worshippers in 2015. As he hearkened back to that day, condemning what he called the poison of white supremacy, Biden was interrupted by a few protesters calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. He heard them out saying, I understand the passion and I've been quietly working with the Israeli government to significantly get out of Gaza. So, with South Carolina's first in the nation Democratic primary coming up on February, on February 3rd, candidate Biden is counting on a strong show of support from black voters amidst warning signs that support may be slipping. So let's bring in our senior political analyst, John Avalon. He's joining us from New York. John, welcome. What do you- Good to see you, happy to. And you too, and, and, and you know, there's so much at stake as this new year uh, starts, as we've just been talking about Ukraine and the bigger fight for democracy. And I was interested that Biden couched the beginning of his speech as a fight for democracy. What did you make of the speech and then we'll ask about, you know, the impact of going to South Carolina. Well, Mother Emanuel Church um, is is less than a mile from my parents' house in Charleston. Um, and so it, it's an area I know well. Uh, and it has really become a, a, a sacred civic space because of the massacre that occurred there. And what a reckoning that was. It was, an, or I think, a relatively renewal of an old idea that we've debated in the United States, often with violence, unfortunately, which is the resistance that exists to a multiracial democracy. Um, that characterized the run-up to the Civil War, certainly, but especially Reconstruction uh, and the violence around overturning Jim Crow. And, and we saw it 
at Mother Emanuel that day. And we see it in more benign and politicized forms to this day. And I think that's what Joe Biden, President Biden, was speaking to. In many ways, it's a companion to his speech at Valley Forge just a few days ago, kicking off uh, his campaign, where he said this is about defending democracy. I think this puts a finer point on it. One of the great obstacles to the fulfillment of democracy's ideal in the United States is white supremacy, is white nationalism, is in some cases Christian nationalism when it is combined with a racial animus, uh, as we've seen too many times. And, and sometimes you've got to listen carefully to hear those strains. But if you know your history, if you're willing to confront it clearly, uh, then, then all becomes more evident. You know, John, he clearly in his campaign knows their history. Valley Forge was obviously an important turning point, I guess, in the war for independence. It's in Pennsylvania. Yeah. As you say, uh, South Carolina, a very important uh, place in the whole civil rights struggle and also in that, you know, poisonous white supremacy. Do you think, though, that like it did last time, it will jumpstart what critics are calling a flagging campaign already? Well, the, the polls show that his campaign is flagging. That's not just a question of critics. I, I, do, I do think it's important to point out, though, that in the 2022 midterms, uh, there were a lot of pundits and, and folks who said that President Biden's pivot to talking about democracy uh, was a surefire loser, that instead he should be talking about the inflation economy, kitchen table issues that are where people live indeed. Um, but he took that risk calculated risk and was rewarded for it. Exit polls show there was no red wave uh, as had been often predicted. Democrats did better than expected. And Democrats have outperformed expectations in polls in every election since, particularly special elections. Um, I think the problem for the Biden campaign isn't just perceptions of the president's age and vigor. Um, it is flagging support among African-Americans, Hispanic voters, and even younger voters. The campaign is betting those folks will come round uh, when 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 it, we get to November 2024, particularly if the nominee is Donald Trump. Um, but given that this is an election in which democracy uh, seems to hang in the balance, um, this all feels to many Democrats and, and close observers like a, a, a risky bet, given on, that the, the Biden team seems to be on the back foot. Uh, we'll see what happens in Iowa next week, New Hampshire after that, whether the Republicans can wrest control of their party from Trumpism. Um, but uh, one of the things the Dem Democrats need to do is form a broader coalition that brings in disaffected Republicans and independents as well as Democrats in their base. This is an attempt to do that. Um, but they're just getting started, and it's always later than you think in politics. Mm -hmm. I, I want to play just a little bit of the speech. We've chosen a small uh, soundbite from his speech in which he's focusing on the notion of truth. Here's what he said. The truth is under assault in America. As a consequence, so is our freedom, our democracy, our very country, because without the truth, there's no light. Without light, there's no path from this darkness. John, it's, it's, he never mentioned, I don't think he mentioned Trump's name, at least what I could hear, but he talks about how the whole story of the 2020 election is one that is, is absolutely, you know, one that is coated in lies by Donald Trump and that they refuse to see that it was a legitimate election. They portray themselves as victims. Uh, we hear right now that uh, there's a podcast that's just happened with Michelle Obama, former first lady. She's saying that, you know, she's worried, you know, sick about the 2024 result. It's the only thing that keeps her up at night. And yet you know, Trump continues 
you know, posting these lies all over the place. Is there a way to break out of that? And what, you know, what responsibility do we all have as, as the interlocutors, really, the intermediaries between a candidate and the public? We have a fundamental responsibility. Um, uh, and I think it, it's a civic responsibility that connects journalists, but also citizens. Um, it, there is an assault on truth that has been going on for several years. It is fomented and crystallized often by Donald Trump's lies, um, uh, and, and they need to be called that, but they're amplified via social media, um, which amplifies often the most conspiracy theorist version of events, the most confrontational version of events, amplifies uh, people who play to the base. And, and I think that's something still, we're still getting our hand, uh, hands on, around. You know, I think the days of, of gatekeepers and Walter Cronkite saying that's the way it is are long gone. But that's exactly why I think we need to strengthen guardrails around our democracy, um, guardrails around democratic norms. We need to call out lies for what they are as we simultaneously rec recognize that uh, Trump and, and the drift towards hyperpartisan media and media fragmentation via social media has been successful in selling outright lies to people who are susceptible to that kind of confirmation bias. We see po new polls every day, Christiane, in the last several days, you know, that, a, that a, a third of Republicans believe January 6th was an inside job. That's a lie. Uh, that the, President Biden was not legitimately elected. That's a lie. And leading Republicans acting as handmaidens to Donald Trump and supporting his campaign before a single Republican has voted, despite the fact that they know that Donald Trump lies about those things and so many others. Mm -hmm. As Donald Trump was said to have said when the House, uh, House whip, Tom Emmer, came around to uh, endorsing him after Trump had scuttled his own bid to become Speaker of the House, they always take the knee. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a corruption within the Republican Party in particular that they need to confront. But we need to shine a light on, on, on the hypocrisy that exists between what so many of those politicians say in public and what they say in private. So this is a dangerous moment for democracy. Truth depends on reasoning together. That requires recognizing common facts. And that's under threat right now. And it requires breaking through. Let me just play for you for what one of his biggest allies, uh, Congressman Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, has said. I have no problem with the Biden administration and what it has done. My problem is that we have not been able to break through uh, that MAGA wall in order to get to people exactly what this president has done. So, John, you've been an advisor before. What do they need to do to break through? Because there are a lot of accomplishments, whether it's the economy, inflation coming down, unemployment down, you know, prices down. It's, the record is pretty good if you look at it objectively. Yes, look, President Biden, if you look at it objectively, has been a consequential and effective president. He's been far from perfect, but perfect's never on the menu. Um, I think what Jim Clyburn's saying, and you're right, I mean, President Biden wouldn't be president if it weren't for Clyburn's endorsement at a critical moment in the Democratic primaries, is saying that they haven't messaged effectively to Main Street America. You know, there are persuadable voters, Republicans, who are persuadable, independents, obviously, by definition, persuadable, and, and, and even disaffected Democrats. You're not going to reach the, the hardcore third of Republicans who will support Donald Trump no matter what. But the messaging has been lacking. I, I wrote a column about this for CNN uh, just into the new year about, are you better off than you were three years ago? Think about where America was three years ago, January 2021, reeling from January 6th, COVID death toll in the United States at its highest level, uh, the economy in shambles. America's in far better shape. Uh, but, but the Biden team has not been sufficient in terms of offering sound bites mm -hmm. and statistics that are sticky 
uh, to help his help just make that stick. And yeah. and Donald Trump is a very effective communicator through repetition. He's a hype man. He's a marketer. Uh, Joe Biden uh, is not at, at that level. But this is really about, again, defending democracy by having common facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they need to up their game. I think there's no question about that. John Avalon, thank you so much. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Now, as we mentioned, President Biden mentioned the Gaza war during his speech, where he said he was working to try to significantly reduce Israel's footprint there. And the war on Hamas continues to reach grim heights. Speaking during his latest trip to the region, the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken today said he is deeply, deeply sorry for the almost unimaginable loss suffered by Al Jazeera's Gaza bureau chief, Wael al-Dadu. His son, Hamza, was killed on Sunday, along with freelancer Mustafa Thraya. The Israel Defense Forces, the IDF, confirmed that they were killed in an airstrike, saying they were targeting a terrorist. Wael's two other children, his wife and his grandchild, were all killed three months ago in an Israeli airstrike. And here is what he had to say as he laid his son to rest. The world must see with their eyes and not with Israel's eyes. It must listen and watch all that is happening to the Palestinian people. What has Hamza done to them? And what has my family done to them? What have civilians in the Gaza Strip done to them? They have not done anything. The world is blinded by what is going on in Gaza. Wael himself was injured in an attack just weeks ago that killed one of his colleagues. And Secretary of State Blinken also says that he's focused on trying to prevent a wider conflict in the Middle East that could, as he said, easily metastasize. Next, Tony Kushner is one of America's most celebrated theater and screenwriters. And a film that he co-wrote nearly 20 years ago is getting a second look amid this war. Steven Spielberg's Munich. This is the story of an assassination of Israeli Olympic athletes at the 1972 Games by Palestinian terrorists. It's also the story of Israel's secret mission to hunt down and assassinate each of those assassins. In one scene, though, Israeli agent Avner is face-to-face with a group of Palestinians. This exchange with Ali and the topic of vengeance has been noted as strikingly relevant today. Here's the clip. You people have nothing to bargain with. You'll never get the land back. You'll all die old men in refugee camps waiting for Palestine. We have a lot of children. They'll have children, so we can wait forever. And if we need to, we can make the whole planet unsafe for Jews. You kill Jews, and the world feels bad for them and thinks you are animals. Yes. But then the world will see how they've made us into animals. They'll start to ask questions about the conditions in our cages. Tony Kushner joins Walter Isaacson now to discuss the war, anti-Semitism, and the purpose of art, especially in this climate. Thank you, Christian and Tony Kushner. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. It's been three months since the Hamas terror attack 
uh, on Israel. And I just read a piece in the New York Times by Lisa Schwartzbaum who said the best way to process it is through the movie Munich that you wrote, co-wrote and Spielberg uh, directed. Tell me how you're processing it and how that movie Munich helps you process it. Oh, I'm not processing it very well. I mean, I think it's it's uh, it's a staggeringly upsetting and confusing time, and a very very frightening time. Um, I'm uh, you know feel sort of crushed every day by uh, um, horror at what's happening in Gaza, at the uh, circumstances that the Palestinian uh, people in Gaza are living in. I'm very worried about um, Israel and and what its actions in Gaza uh, have done to its international reputation, to its historical reputation. I'm very worried about what's happening in the United States. Um, I'm a big supporter of Joe Biden, but I have to say I'm very disappointed uh, so far in the administration's response. Uh, to the bombing of Gaza. Wait, wait, why is that? Because they've not been harsh enough about the civilian casualties? Well, I mean, yeah, you know, uh, the president started out, um, you know, I think mistakenly uh, embracing Netanyahu and sort of saying, we're with you all the way. And then, you know, uttering these kind of uh, fairly tepid platitudes about, you know, let's be careful about what we do next, because, of course, everyone knew the minute we heard about the horrors of October 7th, that the response was going to be horrendous and that uh, Gaza was going to be bombed and that thousands of people were going to be killed. Um, I didn't imagine that it would rise to the level that it's risen. It's 22,000 people, according to the Hamas health authorities. Um, and the president's response uh, has been, you know, to sort of dig in in a way that's surprising to me, uh, because I think he's a profoundly decent guy. And I think he leads uh, often with his heart. And sometimes that leads him to do very brave things. Um, and I feel that he should have been much uh, firmer about stopping this. Uh, and so some of the blood is on our hands uh, at this point. Uh, do you think that sometimes this criticism of Israel, people are saying it's motivated partly by anti-Semitism. You've tried in letters you've written last November, I think, to separate anti-Semitism from being anti-Israel. But is this getting harder to do now? The weaponization of the charge of anti-Semitism uh, which is by the right, which is not a new thing. But I, I think that, you know, there's still absolutely no question. Uh, support of uh, the Palestinian people, um, uh, criticism of Israel is in no way anti-Semitic. It isn't anti-Jewish. It isn't even anti-Israel. I mean, you know, the, the Israeli press is full of incredible, you know, read Haaretz. <laughs> I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're, the Israelis are... Uh, uh, the Israeli press is certainly full of self-criticism, and this is a time of profound uh, internal conflict in Israel. You know, it's a, it's a, it's not a a, sing a country that operates with a single voice, and uh, there's a fiction that's been created by the right in the United States uh, that that it does, and therefore everyone in the United States, especially all American Jews, have to speak with a single voice of absolute blind support for Israel and whatever it's doing. And I think this is a danger for any country uh, to not tolerate dissent. Um, and so it's not 
any more difficult to say that students protesting and using the term intifada are not anti-Semites. Intifada is not an anti-Semitic term. Uh, and uh, the danger to Jews, and there's always danger to Jews, we're a very small minority and we have a very unique position of having been targeted throughout his, you know, at least for the last 2000 years um, uh, and suffering terrible uh, oppression and persecution. But our um, the, the danger to us, I think, almost always comes from the right, not the left. And I see uh, no danger to Jews in, in people arguing that the Palestinian people need to be treated uh, um, you know, in accordance with international standards of, of, uh, of decency and, uh, and according to their human rights. Uh, and uh, I think it's a great danger to Jews for Jews to not speak out in support of the Palestinians because it, it you know, uh, I don't think that, that uh, being Jewish is a, is a tribal identity. I don't believe that, I don't believe in tribalism. I think it's always a mistake. Uh, and, uh, you know, Jewish ethnic, ethical uh, teaching um, doesn't draw the line at, between Jew and non-Jew. You talk about uh, calls for intifada and you're saying that's not really an attack on Jews. But do you think it's now, especially on college campuses, those chants become an attack on Jews, anti-Semitic? Well, look, I'm, I, I don't teach on a college campus. I have not, I've been very busy in the last few weeks. I have not gone to college campuses to, to I, I have seen uh, no evidence um, that there's a, a, a huge increase of uh, attacks on Jewish students. I think there have been some uh, reports of, of altercations between uh, 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 Jewish students and other people, but uh, I, I don't uh, see uh, a great danger. It doesn't uh, strike so you're me. not worried about the rise of anti-Semitism? I'm very worried about the rise of anti-Semitism. I'm worried about the rise of anti-Semitism with people like Trump sitting down and having dinner with Kanye West and that creature, uh, whatever his name was. But you're not worried about uh, anti-Semitism on the left? Anywhere that anti-Semitism appears is a concern for me. If I see evidence of anti-Semitism, I have a, almost all of my friends are on the left. I have a number of Palestinian friends. None of them are anti-Semites. If they were anti-Semites, I wouldn't be friends with them. And I would imagine they wouldn't want to be friends with me. Uh, there's a great deal of anger against Israel. There's a great deal of anger against the Jewish American community. Uh, it is, it, I mean, I'm not minimizing the, the, the sort of scariness of anger directed at Jews anywhere at any time can feel like it will boil over very easily into anti-Semitism because anti-Semitism is such a pervasive theme in Western consciousness. Um, but I think with, uh, you know, with goodwill and discernment and, and using your uh, faculties of reason rather than emotion, it's, it's easy to understand where the anger comes from and easy to also see where our uh, real enemies are. I mean, the spectacle of Elise Stefanik, who supports Donald Trump wholeheartedly, which means that she supports the replacement theory, uh, which is just fundamentally an anti-Semitic theory, getting up and yelling at the presidents of these three schools, um, 
uh, about their uh, weakness on anti-Semitism is ridiculous. Over the years, uh, you've worked with Steven Spielberg, working through a lot of these issues, uh, especially Jewish identity, I think, from Munich to the Fablemans. Tell right. me what it was like working with him and what, what were the themes that y'all were trying to develop? Well, we never sat out and talked about themes. We just sort of liked each other from the first time we started talking, which was about, uh, um, I had published uh, with Elisa Solomon an anthology called Wrestling with Zion, 58 Jewish, progressive Jewish Americans talking about the Middle East conflict, about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And Stephen read the anthology and called me and said, I have this movie that I'm working on. Would you like to take try and write the script. Um, I thought that Lisa Schwartzbaum's essay about it, by the way, was magnificent. The one thing I would add to what Lisa said, because Stephen and I decided to watch Munich. Neither of us had watched it since it first came out 20 years ago. Um, when we were making The Fablemans, we decided that we, we would go to his house and watch it. And I was stunned by something that, and this is why I love working with him. Um, there isn't, a, it's a very bloody movie. You know, a lot of people die in it. There isn't a single death in the entire film, even in in a scene uh, in Beirut where there's just dozens of people being shot and killed. Stephen never shows you a single death as a kind of entertainment. He he introduces, and I don't know that he did this consciously. We didn't talk about it, but every single person who dies has uh, there's a moment right before they die that forces you to recognize that person's humanity which is why the movie is so upsetting. And uh, it's really unique in that way. And I think it's a great um, response to uh, an unfortunate tendency in Hollywood to use human uh, destruction, the destruction of human lives as a kind of, you know, like way of amping up the stakes and getting people's uh, heartbeats uh, faster. There's a, there's a profound grief in, in the film uh, it's why I think Stephen is a great artist. I mean, you see it in all of his movies. It's in Jaws when the shark blows up at the end. There's this stunning moment where you see the fin underwater spinning through this cloud of blood, and uh, and it's it, it's a moment of grief for this magnificent creature who's been destroyed, and it it undercuts the triumphalism of the end quite a bit. You know, it's I I. I love working with him. I consider it a great uh, honor and, and one of the great blessings in my life that we've developed this working relationship. You know, a lot of great artists in history, Leonardo da Vinci comes to mind, sort of grew up as outsiders. He grows up in a small village, uh, gay, left-handed, uh, born out of wedlock. You grew up down here in Louisiana, Lake Charles, not too far from here. Uh, gay and Jewish, uh, and how did that shaping of being an outsider affect your art? You know, uh, there was a very proud, very small Jew. Well, you're from Louisiana, also, so you know. I mean, it, uh, we the Jewish community in Lake Charles, Louisiana, was uh, uh, large enough to have a temple and and services and an identity, and it was a very proud identity. And no one no one apologized for being Jewish. I have said many, many times that when I came out of the closet as a gay man, the model that I used for claiming this identity that had been that was that was being sort of you know disparaged and rejected and despised by the majority was the model that my parents had given me uh, as a as a Jew. That you know, 
if if they don't like you, it's their problem. It's not you. It's them. You know, they need to change. You don't need to change. You need to be who you are. Uh, and I think it was an important lesson uh, to learn. I mean, I uh, you know, I also grew up during a time of busing and integration and and what is now called social engineering that even Richard Nixon sort of went along with and. Uh, so my high school was integrated and, uh, and that taught me a lot about, uh, when, when a society makes a decision to really go after uh, a great social evil like racism in the deep South, astonishing change can happen. And I watched it happen in my high school and it, you know, that changed my life. I mean, I saw my cousins in New York all went to segregated high schools. I went to a high school that was 50% black and 50% white. So I grew up believing profoundly, and I still believe in it, that again, when we when we apply ourselves, we can take situations that seem absolutely um, irresolvable and, and impossible to fix. And, and we can fix them. We can make things better, but we have to go at it with a will. One of the great uh, milestones in terms of uh, gay, lesbian rights uh, was Angels in America. I think, what, 30 years ago or so? And yeah. now, do you think there's been a backlash against uh, those rights? I think that, you know, like all rights that have been granted, including, you know, the right to an abortion, uh, um, the right now to health care. Uh, it's we're learning, and I think it's a it's for me a very moving lesson that that once people have been given a right, they won't let go of it easily. Um, I I think that that's certainly true of same sex marriage and of the acceptance of gay people in American society. The Republicans have tried to figure out a new way to you know uh, with these really repulsive accusations of child molestation and grooming and all of this stuff it's coded language we haven't gone all the way back to pat buchanan getting up in 1992 and making homophobic jokes at the republican national convention we may get that next time i i don't know but uh i i think uh there's pushback but Everything that I read indicates that, uh, you know, I mean, obviously we know now after the after Dobbs and the overturn of Roe that no rights are, uh, are are secure. I mean, to go back to, you know, a Jewish theme, what we learn every year at Seder is that in every generation, a new pharaoh arises seeking to destroy us. And the the fight for justice and liberation and the end of oppression is constant and has to be constantly renewed. You can never say, okay, we won. Now we can be secure. When you were young and you thought about becoming a playwright, I read that uh, you were a little worried. You thought it might be a bit trivial, that art wasn't uh, serious enough. After all these years, do you think art, and especially being a playwright, is serious enough and can actually help change the world? Uh, I don't believe that artists should believe that art can change the world. I don't believe you should make art thinking you're going to change the world because I think that art has tremendous power, but mostly I think its power is not uh, in the way that it leads directly to action. I think it's an indirect power. Politics, 
uh, is the, the necessary evil of, of, of political action is pushing aside all of the contradictions and complexities of life and saying, here is the best, here's our best guess at where to move, how to act. Uh, art in a certain sense doesn't do that. It says, let's look at all of the complexities and all of the contradictions. Uh, it doesn't silence any voice. It says, let's bring in the whole sort of plethora of perspectives and, and spend time thinking about how overwhelming human experience is, how overwhelming life is. I think most human beings find art somewhere and and engage with it and i think it 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 fills your capacity and and strengthens your capacity to be human and to and then you wake up out of the dream and you go forth into the world i think more capable of figuring out the right way to move because you've learned not to filter out too much of the confusion and contradiction before you make the decision so you that's where wisdom comes from. I think art can produce wisdom is a short answer to your question. Tony Kushner, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Walter. It's a real pleasure. And finally tonight, people power in Uganda, Eastern Africa. Born into poverty, Bobby Wine first rose to fame as a musician. But in 2017, he put his career on hold to enter politics and was elected to parliament in a landslide victory. Two years later, he set his sights on the presidency, running against the aging incumbent, Yaori Museveni, who has held an iron grip on power in Uganda for decades. A new documentary, Bobby Wine, The People's President, followed his campaign for five years. It's been shortlisted for an Oscar. And Bobby Wine is joining me now from New York. Bobby Wine, welcome to the program. You know, we just Thank had the you, Christian. Yeah, it's good to see you again. We just had the great Tony Kushner on talking about politics and power and art, particularly, you know, to move people. Where does your art, your music, you know, stand in your political campaigns and your political efforts? Uh, thank you very much. My music opened my eyes, opened the eyes of the masses, especially the young people, and landed me into trouble, <laughs> good trouble. Uh, it is my music that has always been my uh, platform to communicate. Um, it is the way that I reached out to the world. It's what endeared me to the people. And ultimately, it is what I moved to put in practice by joining politics. So I want to play a little, uh, a little clip from, from the documentary. And it is called the Pe Bobby Wine, the People's President. And as I said, it's been shortlisted for the Oscars. Um, let's watch the clip. You're addressing crowds at an election rally.
you know, you have put yourself at great risk because it is not easy to challenge uh, an incumbent who's now been in power for 38 years. What, you know, are, are, you, are you still going to be challenging? Are you still going to be running for president? What is your intention now? Uh, thank you, uh, Christian. We are definitely going to continue challenging General Museveni in every available way, every moral and constitutional way. Um, and of course, by 2026, if we've not gotten him out of power, we definitely challenge him uh, to a free and fair election. And that is why we're here to uh, seek the more attention of the world to help the people of Uganda assert their democratic right. So I'm just going to read these stats. You know, back in, in 2020, you told me that you, know, you, resent, you represented the people who are searching for change. But, you know, Museveni won 58.38 of the vote and you had 35 percent. And, and the, you know, there's been widespread allegations of fraud and intimidation. Um, you had these lyrics in one of your songs, which I put to the president. Uh, I was back in 21. You said, what was the purpose of liberation when we can't have a peaceful transition? Freedom fighters became dictators. Just take a listen to how he answered me when I put that to him. That is uh, wrong. We have been having transition. We have been having transition by having elections. Every five years we have elections. And if the people didn't want to... to to give us a mandate, they would vote us out. So do you think it's possible to actually, you know, break through this? Well, uh, General Museveni said famously in 1986, when he took over power, that Africa's problem, and Uganda in particular, are the leaders that overstay in power. Unfortunately, 38 years later, he does not want to hear what he said, or he tries to change uh, what he said, just like it happened in the book of uh, Animal Farm, where animal, where pigs ultimately said that uh, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Of course, uh, General Museveni has continuously abused uh, power. He has rigged elections. Um, the United States and uh, European election observers were not even able to oversee the election of 2021, which is very uh, clearly followed up in that film um, and all the brutality that was unleashed to us, uh, all to make sure that General Museveni keeps power. Of course, it's uh, a shame. However, uh, the people of Uganda, who are majorly young people, refuse to give up. We continue uh, to pursue a democratic and peaceful uh, mean of changing power. And we believe that if the world stands with the people of Uganda, we can ultimately get uh, a peaceful transition uh, from General Museveni's dictatorship to a democratic Uganda, which will have power, you know, in the hands of the people and the leaders will be accountable to the people. That is what we're struggling for. You know, I, I, I read from the director's notes that one of the reasons you wanted to make this film is also to try to convince world leaders, like democratic leaders, not to keep propping up um, Museveni's government, not to keep sending aid. And I wonder what you think and what you would do if you were president, because in, uh, in May, the parliament in, in Uganda passed the Anti-Homosexuality Act, which apart from being very brutal on, on the victims, also has 
you know, it, it has impacted the economy of Uganda. The World Bank says it won't consider fresh loans. Uh, you know, things like tourism and business have been affected uh, by that, you know, by segregating a whole section of your, of your country. What do you think Uganda can do to reverse that law? Um, first of all, I've said it severally that ours is a struggle for human rights for all Ugandans from all walks of life. Uh, that said, I must also mention that the LGBT issue in Uganda has been politicized. It has been, it has been turned into a political tool. General Museveni, like most dictators in Africa, have turned that issue into a weapon, a political weapon against uh, political opponents. Uh, it's for that reason that uh, I would request you to understand if I cannot comment further on that issue because a law has been passed in Uganda and anything that I say here can be used against me uh, back home by the regime. But I'll still say that we continue to struggle for human rights for every Uganda, for, for every uh, person in Uganda from all walks of life. And very briefly, in 10 seconds, do you plan to go back anytime soon? Yes, I'm going back to Uganda. I am in the United States because uh, we are trying as much as possible to make our plight known. We are very glad yeah. that we were able to have this film out here. I'm thankful to National Geographic Channel to, for having uh, giving us this platform, right. for having given us this platform to tell our Ugandan story. And I hope this reaches out to all people, especially policymakers, to inspire them to change their policies towards Uganda, to make sure they don't continuously prop up okay. a, a dictator who abuses rights and abuses democracy. It is uh, a shame to see world okay, leaders, world <laughs> democracies, standing hand, shoulder to shoulder with a renowned dictator. And that is all we have time for tonight. So thank you for that final word, Bobby Wine. Thanks for watching. Goodbye from London. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.